0: Hello and welcome to Anything That Moves, a Maniv mobility podcast for the mobility curious. I'm your host, Mayor Dardashti. As a mobility-focused VC fund, we get to have all kinds of interesting conversations with founders, industry leaders, and other ecosystem players. The Anything That Moves podcast is our chance to bring more people into these conversations about the future of how people and goods get from here to there and back faster, cheaper, and safer. Before we get started, the team at Maniv wants to hear from you. If you have feedback, or if you are the founder of a company in the mobility space, or even if you aspire to be one, please reach out to us directly via the form on our website, www.maniv.com. That's M-A-N-I-V.com, and click get in touch. I'm here today with Haley Rubinson from, uh, from Revel. Uh, full disclosure before we start, Revel is very proudly a Maniv portfolio company, Um, Haley, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to have you.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, So first of all, I'd love if you give a little bit of background about uh, how you came to Revel, how you came to mobility in general. Uh, I I don't know if it's a traditional path. I don't know if there is a traditional path, uh, but love to get a little color there.
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, So prior to Revel, uh, for about the past 15 years, I've been working on policy and regulatory issues, mostly involving infrastructure and transportation. Initially, in the public sector um, for New York City at the local level under Mayor Mike Bloomberg, then uh, New York State. Um, And then afterwards, right before I came to Revel, I was a managing director at Tusk Ventures, um, dealing with startups with regulatory issues. Um, And probably how I got into transportation is not all that interesting. Um, I did think I wanted to go into social services, I was very idealistic, and it managed to just. Had a great job at the Department of Transportation, the New York City Department of Transportation, who now at, at Revel we deal with a lot. Um, and it was just career changing and really transformative job. Um, you know, there's something about public service, but a more simplified public service where, you know, you, you say, hey, we have a problem at this intersection. You come up with the idea, you know, you deploy it and you see it on the street. It's really immediately gratifying. And I think no matter what sector what area of government you're in, Um, infrastructure, transportation, what you're able to feel and see, uh, in a short period of time is really rewarding in respect to government service. Um, so it was great. I was addicted, um, and it has been a nice ride ever since. I I would say not only was my experience transformative for my career at the New York City Department of Transportation, but I would say, uh, everyone interested in mobility and transportation should put in at least a year. At a local uh, transportation agency. So, you know, there's obviously many layers. There's, you know, up to the federal funding layer of transportation. But, you know, really, transportation at the local level, it, you touch everybody, right? There's like 8 million different opinions, as they say, in New York City. Uh, and you touch every single one of
0: them. You know, I, I actually want to dig deeper there, because um, you mentioned that anyone who wants to work in in a, a mobility or transportation startup ought to work in policy. Um, and, and I feel like there's a, I mean, I know there's a whole backstory there of, of this <laughs> remarkable evolution, this dance between the regulator and the startup. And and you might be probably the best position to talk about that. Um, you, usually this is where I would pontificate, but I, I think this is a good place for you to pontificate, actually. <laughs> you know, what? I feel like there's been an evolution of how mobility mobility startups deal with regulators or interact with regulators. I mean, it's a given that they're going to, but right. but there's been a song and dance. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit through sure. how that interaction has evolved in the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been really apparent to me. So be, I started in the Bloomberg administration, and Mike Bloomberg was really known and, and our commissioner at the time um, for pushing the envelope. My time at New York City DOT, we shut Times Square down to traffic, and hey, the world didn't end in a lot of bike lanes, really transform the public space. Um, so I kind of went into my career saying, hey, you can do this. There's all of these broader thinking things. We don't have to be the, you know, run transportation services like it's 50 years ago. Um, that said, there's also, you know, an influx, especially with, the, you know, the app-based transportation. And I also think a realization, and I can say this because at the time I was on the regulator, Side of things, but government can't do it all. Uh, for a very long time, even in the like very beginning of my career, the thought was it's the government's responsibility. This is you know one thing that many people, regardless of your political affiliation, um, might agree with that you provide public transportation, and you know there's a lot of capital costs. We need to build roads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think in the intervening decade. Um, regulators themselves have realized, you know, why do we need to use taxpayer dollars to fund every single way to get from point A to point B? Um, You know, especially as cities are getting more popular and there's this boom with a lot of people moving to U.S. cities and everybody can own a car. You know, the more transportation options, the better. I always laugh because people in New York complain all the time about a lack of transportation options. Um, Whereas like if you're in any other city in this country, or even many areas of the world, you would love to have, you know, the kind of transportation we have in New York city. Not that it's not without its challenges, but I think there's just a realization on both sides. And so um, there are so much, somewhat of a willingness. That said, I mean, I think Uber for better or for worse is will go down in history and I, I would say there may be some bad, but there's also a lot of good in that they really fought Regulators and I was not actually working for the city of New York at that time um, when the Uber had its biggest fight with New York City to date at that time. Um, But I would say our approach at Revel is not kind of the Uber approach. We're not seeking to fight government. We see or we see ourselves as we're putting transportation on the street, and we have a role just like government and responsibility you know, that to interact with people who may not want to interact with our product. So whether you're a vehicle or you're someone else on the road, everybody has an interest and and potentially a concern, and we have to take it that seriously. And I think it's not necessarily that a company like Uber had a different philosophy, but government um, at that time was... I would say, very closed. Government doesn't like change. It's it's difficult in all fairness, it's, which is a fine thing. But I think that fight really changed things for the better.
0: You're Uber. talking about the fight between Uber and, oh, and yeah, New York City.
1: Right, so uh, it might have been like 2014, which actually is now a long time ago. Um, the city wanting to cap four higher vehicle trips um, and you know, really Uber waging a very, Public angry campaign, um, and I think it, it was a it was actually great for the public to even see because you know you think Uber this big tech company they are drivers right there's thousands of people in this city who make their livelihood um, it is a job there is a demand um, in, in any case I think that was a, it was a pretty nasty fight but the outcome is that I think government has. L- soften somewhat to realizing, you know, we don't have to be the bad guy. Uh, Everybody wants transportation options. We don't have to get to that point. There's actually a virtue in sitting down. And if there's a public demand for something, seeking a resolution. And so I would say the next wave that I saw was uh, dockless transportation, dockless bikes, kick scooters. and, And that was sort of less directly contentious. It was more of a beg for forgiveness type thing.
0: I have to say, that's that's one of the things that we loved about Revel when we first okay. saw you guys was, you know, both the attitude of, you know, let's sit down and work with the regulators mm-hmm. wherever possible, and the deftness with which you guys handled it. Um, it really was a breath of fresh air in this space.
1: Well, it's interesting. So I would like to take all of the credit, but I have to say when I joined Revel, um, Frank and Paul, uh, the Revel co-founders had that philosophy even before I joined. And so this is just like a perfect job for me, right? Because I actually, one of the few people in this area that really respect government and I believe in it. Um, And so so do they, but I think it's more of, uh, is government good or bad? It's just, this is, it's just part of the business, right? And so working with government, um, helping also government to grow and shift and change Uh, is also helpful and that it doesn't have to be contentious because we actually all have the same goals. Um, And I think the transparency and and having been on the other side, uh, in my experience, there's a lot, a lack of transparency between companies and government. Oh, they can't share data. You know, everyone's up in arms. We can't share data. Well, companies are now sharing their data and the sky hasn't fallen. You know, we can't, do X, Y, and Z. And so I think coming to the table, understanding that government has a responsibility and and we have something we want to do has made things much easier, um, but not perfect. Right. So, you know, as infuriating as it can still be, I I should actually make clear that um, it's not just a hundred percent smooth sailing at all times, but I would say that there is What has happened in my experience at Revel is even when we are at odds, which doesn't happen frequently, but it can happen um, with uh, cities, we're able to come together and uh, reach a solution that I actually think like, you know, in some cases elevates us as a company um, and also helps the city out in meeting some of their goals. And so I think it's just better for both sides um, to approach it this way. And I will say it has been really successful.
0: Not to push for drama where it doesn't need to be, but I mean, let's let's acknowledge a little bit of an elephant in the room. Which is, there there have been, you know, some scuffles with with New York City in the last six months. Um, you know, Revel's been very ambitious in, 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 in its growth and in its plans, and and you know, you, you shake things up and 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 you know, some people get upset. Uh, where where do you think are the are, are you know are maybe some of the blind spots for both the players in this relationship? You know where where do you see that these flare ups are likely to happen, mm-hmm. uh, and to what extent is that inevitable, and to what extent is that is that you know uh, something that both sides can come in uh, and, and and maybe you know uh, learn from and be more productive going forward.
1: Right. So I would say that you know and and having worked with companies in the past, um, consulting with other companies similar to Revel, it, it can be hard, but um, you know just having good working relationships with anybody, much less government it doesn't it's not a free pass right you know just because your regulators like you better than others uh does not mean that they don't have the same responsibilities and, and the same you know people who are running our cities have a lot of needs to reconcile at once and so whereas like revels number one concern it may not even be the the department of transportation's number one concern at that moment because there's a million things going on and so in my view there's a lot of patience required um, but then there's also politics like I'm a big believer in government but it's exhausting <laughs> um, in the politics there are things that like you just there's always inherent risk regulatory risk in anything that you do especially in transportation but the bigger you go right you know you would think that uh, Revel putting up uh, the largest, Fast charging universal super hub in the Americas, in Brooklyn, in Bedstuy, would be just like a no-brainer and all perfect. And and while it is, um, you know, it doesn't give us a pass for everything else that we're doing, right? And it did require our infrastructure team working really hard with ConEd, which can be challenging. Um, so I would say that uh, on the company side, to not take anything for granted, you know, it's not like the the bad old days where, yeah, you have someone in your pocket, someone likes you, you get all these favors, you know, we're still all acting above board and, and there will be times where we want to do something that the city is not comfortable with or vice versa. I so want
0: to give really a little crazy. bit of context to this conversation because, uh, you know, I'm personally not from New York. Oh. Um, a lot of our <laughs> listeners are not. And even though Revel is ubiquitous, you know, in New York and you, you can't miss the baby right. blue, you know, vehicles, um, you know, I. You guys started with um, free-floating uh, moped sharing. Uh, you've expanded into, you know, uh, uh, the largest uh, fast charging hub in, in, in the Americas. And and what what caused the flare-up in the re- last six months was expansion into ride-hail. Um, you know, and and for those who haven't seen it, by the way, and I'm, I'm sorry to plug a portfolio company, and I am being biased, but it's it's very understandable bias because when you see a baby blue Tesla Model oh. Y. Um, you know, ra- riding down the road, of, you, know, uh, you know, driving down Fifth Avenue. It, it, it's striking. Um, uh, but, you know, specifically in that context, what, what you're doing that I think is very different, and I'm really curious how you model this out and how you think about it, um, is that we associate ride hail, probably more than any other industry, uh, with the gig economy. You know, when, when we think of it can be Uber, it can be Lyft, it can be almost any other player in the space. Um, you know, we're thinking about people bringing their own cars to work. Um, and and being paid for the work they do, but honestly not being paid all that well. Um, and you know, I guess the jury's still out on on in the long term how it'll be perceived. But you know, at least recently there's been a lot of backlash um, to driver treatment, um, to the you know the fair treatment of of other members of this ecosystem. How, you know, I, I think for a long time the counter argument from within the, the ride hail industry was that this is just an inevitability and there's no other profitable way to do this. But you guys are offering ride hail with paid drivers, you know, employees with benefits. Um, h- how do you do it? I mean, how do you how do you respond um, to, you know, to the claim that there's no other way, there's no other profitable way uh, to run a ride-hail service?
1: You know, the ride-hail of the next 10 years is not going to be the ride-hail of the last 10 years. Like, like many other things, there's going to be an evolution. The first is the mission of, of you know, the dominant companies in this space. Not necessarily the mission, but... Um, The goals are are kind of opposed to ours because you don't own your own vehicle, right? So they are a platform. They will tell you this. um, They are not a transportation operation company. They are a platform and they connect riders and drivers and that's it. So if you're Uber or Lyft, you have a vested interest in having as many possible vehicles on the road so that a customer gets a ride in in the fewest possible minutes after requesting one. So if you are a driver and you end up giving one ride a day, Uber and Lyft don't care because you know it's it's a level of service that keeps customers coming back. And they get a portion of that. But if you're a Revel and you own the vehicles and you pay the drivers regardless of them having a fare or not, um, you pay them. You know, you get a flat tire and you're an independent contractor with your own vehicle. You got to take care of it, but you also lose that revenue, right? You're not losing your hour of work if you get a flat tire driving for Revel. And so because we have greater costs, we also have more incentives to optimize the amount of vehicles on the road, when they're on the road, where they're on the road. Um, and I think the thing that what New York is reacting to and how they reacted to us, which um, although I disagree with, I, I we have to concede that, you know, there's too many cars on the road, right? And a lot of this is because we have a bunch of different drivers, um, trying to get these fares. And the business model of the independent contractor driving from one of these platforms only incentivizes, you know, underutilized vehicles being on the road. We're here to disrupt that model. And I think that we can do it. I think because we have to be concerned about our costs, we are not just flooding the market with vehicles. So, you know, we optimize our vehicles. Um, I also think with employees, and, you know, it's not to cast any dispersions because there are plenty of people that are happy working gig economy jobs and actually enjoy it or are very good at it and it works for them. But I would say we've learned this because we've never used gig economy since day one. As with our moped business, when you have real employees, it's just a different relationship to the company. It's in a different relationship to the service. So there's a different level of pride and accountability you take. Um, additionally, because they are our employees, We have ability to train, you know, if you're an independent contractor in most cities, uh, at least in the United States, you, you know, you can't train. You can't train the drivers or they'll be considered employees. And then, you know, you have to go before departments of labor and get cited and deal with all of these things. Whereas for us, we can train our drivers. we have technology in our vehicle uh, for the safety of the driver, but also for the passenger. Um, and we we have video footage, we have sensors. We can tell if there's instances of hard braking. Obviously, we don't anticipate um, any of our drivers being uh, reckless drivers. They do take driving tests. They do go through an extensive training. However, if people are starting to trend in, in a certain direction and, you know, it can be frustrating driving in the city, we see that and we can address it long before it becomes a problem.
0: You know, it's funny. One of the, one of the points that comes up over and over again as mobility investors for us um, is that with a mobility startup, and it doesn't really matter where in the value chain you sit. Somewhere in that value chain, there is an asset that's moving. There's a fleet of something. You know it could be robots it could be cars it could be mopeds it could you know you could even be a software company in this space but at some point you're addressing a fleet of some kind and and the funny thing that hit us sometime around when we met you guys is that uber makes a really bad fleet if you think about the fleet itself you know we like fleets because fleets are big groups of cars that you can then when they get a flat tire you can aggregate the costs of fixing that tire. You can know exactly who to go to. You can you can optimize for cost for time. You know you can you can train drivers like you said. Um, but when you think about what Uber can do, Uber's got a fleet of individually owned cars. It gets none of the economies of scale on maintenance. It gets none of the economies of of knowledge that come with training. They can't even. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago they announced this this clean air initiative um, where they were going to transition their fleet to electric and. God knows how many years. And, and the funny thing is, when you stop and look at it, they can't transition their fleet to electric.
1: Oh, I mean, there's so much in what you're saying, but I think the companies themselves would tell you they're not mobility companies. They are tech platforms. Um, and so to them, it is the platform that is connecting the driver and the passenger in that, and that's it. And I think we just know from the past however many years, 10 years they've been around, that it doesn't really work out that way. Also, there's limited space on the street. So, you know, a lot of cities have their own taxi services, which are sort of being disrupted. But even still, you know, you can just fit just so many cars on the street. So they're finite resources. And and I think it's to say it's irresponsible might be overly simplistic, but, you know, it's irresponsible (laughs) um, to throw a whole bunch of cars uh, where the interest, you know, of I guess the entity ultimately controlling this platform Um, is not connected with the the drivers that are making the living, the cities. Um, There's something, in my view, it's just not optimal. And that's why you have places like New York where you have, even though there's a cap on on new vehicles, you have thousands and thousands of cars, thousands and thousands of licensed TLC, uh, which is the regulatory entity drivers, and no one's really making a great living. The next point, just because I cannot let this one go, but... You know, when you hear a company saying their fleet's going to go electric by 2025, 20, uh, 2030, 2035, I mean, come on. Um, you know, like they're making or, or had in the past made bets on autonomous vehicles in like far fewer years. We've had this technology for a long time. And practically speaking, they can't do it because there's not the charging infrastructure.
0: Haley, Haley, I spoke with. One of the guys who used to handle uh, Uber's clean air initiative in Europe, uh, which was, I think the best they could do, they, they can't, again, you can't force someone who owns their own vehicle to switch to electric. Right. The best they could do was offer. If you were absolutely a hundred percent fully bought in for years into the Uber ecosystem, they could offer you some kind of like rebate on your, uh, you know, some discounted fee on future rides. If you had an EV, which you can imagine how powerful that is as an incentive, which is pretty weak. And and the guy ran the numbers himself. And he actually quit the company mm-hmm. and said, you know what? I'm going to make my own fleet. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers for EVs work with or without incentives. And right. and so it was pretty damning when I met the former head of the uh, Uber uh, Clean Air Initiative, who realized that he could do a better job on his own electrifying this fleet right. than he could incentivizing Uber to do it.
1: Right. And I, and I think particularly in large, dense cities where people live vertically, um, they don't have garages you know, you, you'd have to, there's been no investment, or at least to my knowledge, in you know, charging infrastructure with all all the resources these companies have, right? Even, yeah, it's getting cheaper and cheaper to buy an EV, and no doubt the prices will continue to fall, and it'll be a no-brainer. However, if you can't charge your vehicle, how, how could you expect people that make their living off of their vehicle, but don't, own a type of home where they have a garage and they can charge it.
0: So I want to go back to the uh, congestion issue because I I was in New York last week for the first time in a couple of years, which, you know, I I didn't see coming, but then there was this, you know, pandemic, I don't know if you heard about it, um, that effect, you know, it had been longer than I thought it was going to be before I came back to New York. Um, And I was shocked even relative to when I left, you know, when you look down the street, I think the majority of the cars I saw were ride hail one way or the other. Um, and it was just, it was just shocking. And, and I'm, you know, you're looking at thousands, if not tens of thousands of vehicles. Do, do you have some kind of internal estimate of, you know, just in orders of magnitude, like how many vehicles would it take an optimized fleet um, to cover Manhattan?
1: We'll let you know. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I'm sure our data science team can, can get you sort of in the right direction, but that's what we're trying to figure out, right? Um, we're also trying to figure out, you know, what, what does make the most sense? Um, obviously, we we want wait times to be as as minimal as possible, but um, it, it's TBD. Uh, but I also think it's interesting. You know, just last year, I think I read that vehicle ownership in New York City is up forty percent, and like in Manhattan, seventy five percent. We have too many cars in the city now, um, and there is to be a reckoning. Um, and I think as we come back from COVID fingers crossed for really coming back um we'll see more but but that's also why we started with this initial service area in manhattan of below 42nd street you know in covid things are always moving there you know you know who's there there's the the trips are pretty reliable unlike the rest of the city where, where it's kind of like what's going to happen with transportation patterns so it'll be interesting um it is also interesting and and positive to see that people have not left the city as was, you know, a year and a half ago projected, uh, at least not permanently. Um, so I guess we will see, but we'll have an answer for you.
0: We, we like to joke that three days into the pilot, the good news was that uptake was very good. The bad news was it seems like about 90% of rides are either money or money related. So we're, we're working on... We're um, <laughs> uh, uh,
1: it. Well, I think it's it's also, you know, in we, we have a wait list. Um, we just don't no. I mean, people on the street, we're having reports from our drivers. People are like, whoa. I mean, you've seen the vehicles, they look great. Um, the drivers are really excited to be driving, finally. Um, but
0: I want to say on that last on that last point, the, the thing that's hardest to quantify to about um, my experience riding in a, in a, in a, in a, in a Revel Ride Hill uh, was just, you know, the experience of riding with a, a driver who really is just really excited
1: Mm -hmm. Um, to be
0: driving, I'm not going to give you guys that much credit, not just with Revel, but to be driving a car that, you know, he or she enjoys driving is excited to drive. Like, you know, um, the, the, there's a different feeling in riding in these, you know, in in these cars where the driver will be the first, they'll initiate with you and say, I'm really excited to be driving an electric car. This is pretty cool. Um, that, that (laughs) I was surprised by, by, uh, you know, how much that hit me in the metaphorical kishkas.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) You know, that was was a bit of a surprise for me.
1: Yeah, I think it's also, um, you know, not having to clean the vehicle, not having to maintain the vehicle, not having to worry about every little thing because, you know, they are a company vehicle that we maintain them um, and keep them operating. I think also what we're hearing from drivers is we have this driver support team. And so this was like the first team established um, and it is just to deal with it our drivers. And so our former head of customer service on mopeds, you know, just in general is leading this team. And, and I think it, I mean, the message is that, you know, just like our actual customers, we value these drivers. We we're here to solve your problems. You have someone behind you, right? You know, if you get a a TLC ticket right from a, a taxi inspector, your whole day is shot trying to fight the ticket and appearing and you're not making a wage and just to have a company behind you, Um, in that process, at least it's been expressed to us is just a game changer. It's a lot less stress, um, on these people. And again, it it may not be for everyone, right? So there's space for, for other business models. But I think the critical thing is that this option didn't exist until we hit the road last week. So there was not an option. If you want a, a stable, reliable career as a driver, um, where you have access to benefits just like i or or anybody at our headquarters would have access to benefits um and you know there there's clearly a demand for it because you know with very minimal effort we receive like you know over a thousand or more uh applications from tlc licensed drivers meaning they're active they were already driving for uber lyft something else and they're sick of it and they want this. So I think even like, and as we talk to regulators, you know, I can appreciate that a regulator doesn't want another Uber and Lyft, right? Okay. But we're not. And and the reason we're not is because this is a pathway to employment. And so this is a real job. And I think from the consumer model, again, it may look the same, although I would say it is of higher quality. From the labor perspective, for those people who are driving who want this option, now they have it. Um, and, and for that reason, I do think that it is important to have an option like that um, in the city because there are clearly people that want it.
0: I, I want to respect your time, but I have one last left, left field mm-hmm. question here, which is, you know, you mentioned that you were, you were in the Bloomberg administration uh, when they started closing off streets, creating new green spaces, um, and and kind of ending the monopoly of, of cars on public mm-hmm. transit streets. When the pandemic broke out, I think there were a lot of uh, rosy predictions about how much that would expand and how permanent changes in the urban landscape <laughs> would take place. And I think the jury's kind of still out. I mean, how do you see that developing? Are these are these promises that you see being kept the next couple of years, or do you think that you know this recedes into the public memory when we go back to giving every square inch to cars?
1: Since um, I worked in transportation in the Bloomberg administration, the good news is um, there are a lot of strong advocates out there, um, and I don't even just mean traditional transportation advocates, clean air advocates. You know, people who care about quality of life in the city, who actually value. Um, the quality of their life and who, many of whom, including myself, live here because I don't want to drive a car. Um, and I think with COVID, it, it makes it tricky. And I, and I know, you know, there's all of this debate over, oh, the subway ridership is down. Um, I feel fairly confident we're going to get back to where we were. My broader concern is you know, we saw a massive slowdown in concern over transportation, the public space, um, like livable cities in the past eight years <laughs> um, in New York City. And I think, you know, it, it can get taken for granted a lot, but these sorts of improvements help everybody, right? Nobody can argue against transportation access. Nobody would argue that people shouldn't be able to have access to jobs. I mean, we're, we're five boroughs, but we're one city. Um, and so my hope, you know, we're going to a new mayoral administration in January and that, um, we'll see a little, a bit more shift to concern over such issues. So, cause I would say even before COVID, um, there was just like a, a lot less innovation happening. It's promising to see so many more bike lanes and more people cycling, including myself. I would have never cycled in the city. I do now. I'm actually a COVID cycler, uh, I, I I tested it out as the roads were pretty bare, so uh, I got comfortable. And now traffic is back, and so am I. So I'm optimistic, but I, I think there needs to be a political will. Um, I, I think there's no shortage of people. If you live in the city, they care about this. Um, but I, but it'll take political courage, I think. Um, and, and I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that we'll have that here soon.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much for your time, Haley.
1: Great Thank pleasure you, chatting.
0: Too. Looking forward to next time in person.
1: Absolutely. Nice to talk to you.
0: Thanks. Thank you to producer Lauren Laws for making this episode happen and to Naomi Lazaroff for post-production help. If you like their work and were willing to put up with mine, please rate and subscribe to Anything That Moves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whichever platform is winning the podcast for this week. Once again, for feedback or to reach out for investment, please go to Manivh.com and click get in touch. You can also find us on Twitter at Manivh Mobility, LinkedIn, and Medium. Thanks for listening.